The information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. Remains to be seen what's the most effective way to help people get there. I think the other thing would be an honest conversation about, like, let's look at plan B and C and say, Let's say we don't get there, Mm -hmm. and here's what's still on the table. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to leave, but the last thing I want somebody to leave feeling like hopeless. You know, I want them to sort of feel like there's a plan and there's a backup plan. You know, there's one thing that's great about plastic surgery is that we can always come up with some other new option or tweak. I mean, it's a field that's kind of on adaptability. It just doesn't come together for somebody making sure they still feel like we can some some options to mm-hmm. take home. Yeah, for sure. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Aaron Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking to two different surgeons from the Meltzer Clinic, Dr. Zara Lay and Dr. Nick Esmond. Dr. Zara Lay is an accomplished board-certified plastic surgeon. She's extremely intelligent and creative and has an impressive surgical training background with multiple plastic surgery subspecialty fellowships that allow her to provide superb comprehensive care to the transgender community. Dr. Lay has spent some time teaching at the University of Utah and really enjoyed teaching the full breadth of plastic surgery to the new generation of young surgeons. And while she enjoyed teaching, she feels most at home at the Meltzer Clinic providing surgical services to the transgender community. Dr. Nick Edsman is newer to the clinic. However, he is not new to transgender medicine or transgender surgeries. He has been spending the last several years at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, where he's been training and has extensive knowledge in the area. Dr. Edsman is now full-time at Portland, Oregon and accepting new clients for different types of surgeries. And while both surgeons do perform a wide variety of gender-affirming procedures, the topic of today's podcast is going to be focusing on phalloplasty. We're going to be talking about how to prepare for surgery, what to expect with the staging, various different possibilities with complications, successes, and the different ways that you can have the surgery done. Both surgeons are very passionate about the trans community and want to make sure that their patients feel heard. And so not everybody has to go through the same process from start to finish. So I'm really excited. Everyone take a listen, write your questions down. At the end of the episode, we'll have ways for you to be able to contact the clinic and reach out to the surgeons with any questions you might have. Awesome. Let's take a listen. Enjoy. All right. Well, I would like to welcome you both to the show. Today, we have Dr. Nick Esmond and Dr. Zara Lay, and we're here to talk more about gender-affirming surgeries. And both uh, surgeons do practice at the Meltzer Clinic, which has two locations in Portland, Oregon, and in Arizona. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Excellent. So, uh, Nick, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first and let us know what your pronouns are. Uh, My name is Nick Esmond, and 
the pronouns I use are he, him, his. Excellent. And what about you, Zara? I'm Zara Lay. I go by uh, she, her, hers for pronouns. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to be on the show. Really excited. A lot of our listeners have asked me a lot of different questions about, you know, gender affirming surgeries in general. And I have previously focused more on vaginoplasties just because of the way it's worked out with other guests. However, you know, it would be really awesome if we could focus today's show on phalloplasty and, you know, anything else that is really pertinent to the masculinizing uh, process. Before we get too far into that, I'd like to know a little bit more about y'all as far as like, you know, what brought you into the field, what your favorite procedures are to do, um, that type of thing. So if you'd like to go first, Zara, that'd be great. Okay. Well, my my entry into gender surgery was a bit unexpected. As a member of the community, you know, I, I had looked into gender surgery in textbooks as part of the, the plastic surgery training. But, you know, for me, it was also more personal um, because I was seeking those same surgeries. And I, I had sort of wondered if it was something that I wanted to do. And I thought about going to Thailand to get training done uh, or going to other countries to get it done just because I didn't think that anyone here in the States would take the time to train me. And I mean, we're talking like years and years and years back. Now there are more established programs and academic places where mm-hmm. they have established programs. And so their their trainees or residents get exposure to gender surgery. And then they can make that educated uh, decision as to whether they want to incorporate gender surgery into their future practice or mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Nick did, you know, take it on you know, full on and say, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got into uh, gender surgery. Dr. Meltzer basically saw all my credentials and thought you have the perfect surgical background to do this type of uh, surgery. Have you ever considered it? And at that time, I just thought, I just thought, yeah, I have, but I, I didn't think he was serious or that he was actually literally asking me <laughs> to, to do the surgeries. Um, and so that's how I got into it. And he basically offered me a job mm-hmm. and it didn't take me very long to say yes. <laughs> that's great. Sounds like it was that's meant to be. Yeah. And it took about a year to really get me trained up. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted He wanted to do the training the right way and not just be like, hey, watch me do this a few times and then you're on your own kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or, you know, go somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. same thing, watch a few surgeries and then come back. Now, I did travel and I, I did see other places just to kind of get an idea of how, not just how he does it, but how other teams do it. Mm-hmm. And that's all been very helpful in developing my skills and yeah, training. Mm-hmm. But we went about training me up, and that's. I mean, Doctor uh, Dr. Nick will tell you his experience, and that was basically the same approach we took with him: mm-hmm. is to make sure that whoever we take on doesn't just watch a surgery for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden become an expert. We wanted right a sort of a graduated uh, training program. Mm-hmm. where they got exposure, then they started 
assisting and being more hands-on. And so I think that's that's the right way of going about mm-hmm. training. Absolutely. Especially with such personalized surgeries. It's not, yeah. you know, yeah. Right. It's super specialized surgery. Mm-hmm. Every plastic surgery program or other type of specialty program necessarily has that type of exposure. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, thank Enjoy. you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you, Nick? So as Zara mentioned, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to join their group and um, learn from two very well established surgeons. And I think one of the things that's struck me along the way is, um, as Zara mentioned, the more you know about the field, the more you're really humbled mm-hmm. about how just how challenging some of the complications can be and how big of a deal the complications can be, not just medically, but socially, emotionally, uh, it, you really are, it's a very sick taking. So it's not a training that you would want to rush through. Um, and I think that while there's been this recent kind of preponderance of surgeons performing and offering these things, which I think ultimately will work in the patient training, the training is I would say specialized enough that I really, I really think it was important to get um, to get a focus training in addition to what you do as part of a plastic surgery training program. So mm-hmm. at OHSU in Portland, Oregon, uh, I was a junior resident, which means sort of halfway through a six-year program, and that, around that time, you're starting to be asked and asking yourself what sort of career you're interested in, mm-hmm. and uh, I. Take spent a lot of time with the craniofacial surgeons and enjoyed facial surgery, facial aesthetic surgery, uh, just for the finesse and the creativity and mm-hmm. kind of the powerful, the powerful impact it could have in over a very short time. Um, but ultimately, that didn't feel quite right. And then I'd uh, met our new associate program director and new faculty, Jens Burley, and he was a surgeon who had came from Hopkins and had a pretty extensive training in terms of general reconstruction. I'm not necessarily all related to gender surgery, but um, also had uh, with top surgery and had been able to train and travel around the world uh, and come to OHSU with a focus on gender surgery. So um, when he showed up and I was able to start seeing the surgeries uh, that he performed and start very quickly seeing the impact it had on the patient's life, it was almost like a light bulb just went on it was i realized that this was a, the exact field i wanted i wanted to and never look back so I to in the course of my uh residency with the urologists the ent scientists the uh, of course class was able to travel and present research around the world and just really get as much of an opportunity as I could to learn during residency. And part of it included our, the transgender health program, which was a coalition of community activists, doctors, and other providers related specialties. So I really got to see how surgery fit was one of sort of a bigger set you know, piece, piece of the puzzle and appreciate, just, you know, I think that while in many fields, surgeons sometimes get, of the decision-making ladder. Um, I, I appreciated that 
day the kind of collaborative and communal sort of treatment planning that went into taking care of patients and mm-hmm. how we called on diverse specialties of work or pelvic floor PT or yeah. you know pediatric endocrinology and I I like that kind of work I like being able to um, uh, build a coalition and especially as you know it's kind of a gambling answer but especially as adolescent care is sort of taking off and we're seeing more and more adolescents in surgery you really mm-hmm. realize there's new issues new training that, that needs to come to be able to serve them because mm-hmm. they've historically not not had access to these procedures so right needless, needless to say it was a it was a very meaningful and wonderful experience and then after residency i was um able to join the Meltzer group um after we we met uh, when we were traveling abroad for research so oh that's cool it's been the most extraordinary experience in my life and every you know every day just gets more and more interesting so yeah so how far into it uh, in the one-year process of before being the full-time uh, associate surgeon in Portland? Uh, so I'm now full-time in Portland. Oh, great. Uh, starting, I guess, this past month. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, that's very exciting. So you're working on continuing to offer. Which which surgeries do you mainly focus on? Or do you kind of so do a little I, bit of everything? I think within our practice, our our setup will be that we are we all will offer everything with the caveat that there are some procedures um, mm. that will go more towards the senior partners in the group. Um, some more complicated um, revisions, reconstructions on, mm-hmm. say, if somebody had a vaginoplasty and had a complication and needs a secondary procedure. So mm-hmm. things like that will gravitate. But in general, we we'll offer the same. Oh. procedure and then based on complexity um right we can sort of kind of, or complexity or interest we can kind of um, pair up or yeah up how things are done that is to me that's completely mind-blowing that you are all so talented to offer such an array of surgeries because each individual surgery itself is quite complex so i'm impressed um and very excited to pick your brains today about it all so Mm-hmm. One thing Dr. Meltzer just mentioned to me, he said, you know, in his training, and I'm sure it's yeah. the same as ours, that, you know, it was, the culture was that you, you don't consult out, you know, sub sort of, I guess, sub, subcontract out parts of your surgery or the patient's care. You really take ownership of the whole thing. And so one of the things I was amazed is that, you know, Dr. Lay and Dr. Meltzer really performed the full gamut of surgery, including managing urologic complications, yeah. complications head and neck, you know, complications from other centers. It's very important to, to be able to offer the full so when a patient comes to you, they feel like they can really yeah. take care of. Yeah, I mean, and I agree, and I think, but I, I think it's very unique to have that kind of comprehensive approach. So a few questions that I had, and, you know, I guess they could be directed at both of you is, you know, more in detail about the phalloplasty. And some questions that patients often ask me is the staging process. And I know a lot of different clinics do it very similarly, but other people have their own unique way of doing things. And so one of the questions that uh, a listener had was, how do you all stage phalloplasty? So what should a patient accept? expect rather, you know, when coming to your clinic about the whole process from, you know, maybe even beginning the consult to like how many different types of surgical procedures could they expect or are things done more in at one in one go? And if you do split it up, 
kind of what is the approach to that? Phalloplasty in general is a bit of a broad topic Mm -hmm. because different types of phalloplasty. And so I think for a potential candidate, they have to decide, first of all, what type of phalloplasty they Mm -hmm. want to have, whether they want to go through the microsurgical pathway or the pedicled phalloplasty options, which does not require as extensive or as complex of a reconstruction. Hmm. And another decision that patients have to decide on is what their ultimate goal is, especially when thinking about voiding. So some patients get phalloplasties without urethra reconstruction. Mm -hmm. They can still have tactile device placed and so that it works in that manner, but they won't ever be able to void through the actual neophallus as opposed to someone who wants to, I mean, I guess you'd call it go all the way. There's no right or wrong right. way of doing it. It's just what's right for the patient. But for those patients who wish to have a phalloplasty with urethral reconstruction, then there are additional options, perhaps additional stages to address the urethral portion of it so that they could pee through the actual neophallus. Hmm. Okay. So that's the complicated part. The first thing is knowing what you would like or certainly what to ask about those types of procedures because they all come with their own sets of challenges and potential complications. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, perhaps even additional staging for that. And so that's the very, very first thing mm-hmm. that they need to decide. But it also depends on where that tissue comes from. So they have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I talked about the pedicle options, we're talking either ALT mm-hmm. or groin flap. Mm-hmm. Those come from the groin crease. And so those types of wounds are closed in a single line and they're easy to hide because they're under the shorts and the boxers and briefs. Mm-hmm. And so unless you're totally naked, no one is able to see those. Whereas the microsurgical option, especially when we're referring to the forearm, it leaves a substantial scar mm-hmm. in the forearm. Mm-hmm. And so that's very, very hard to hide. Now, people can wear a sleeve all the time or tattoo it once, mm-hmm. the, once the wound is healed, but they will always have a rather large and sometimes a bit of an unsightly scar on mm-hmm. the arm. Mm-hmm. So I, I see enough patients seeking phalloplasty that they weren't quite aware about that part. They, they don't want it because they can't hide that part. And like Dr. Right. Meltzer has, you know, as Dr. Meltzer has always kind of commented, it just takes one celebrity or one very famous open out trans male to undergo this procedure and show the world what the, what their scars look like, that other people are going to start taking it out. They're going to, you know, they're going to see someone's arm scar and be like, oh my gosh, that's a, you know, they'll be able to be clocked easier. Yeah. So all of a sudden they're not as stealth. That person had a phalloplasty or that's a transgender person. Yeah. Now that, now, um, 
So those kinds of things matter to patients, but they have to obviously be aware of it. So that's what I, you know, that's what I have to say as an introduction to phalloplasty is that yeah. there isn't just one type. And like I said, there's no right or wrong. Right. It just depends what wishes are, what their goals are, mm-hmm. and whether they are willing to accept the scars that go along with whichever chosen procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's super informative over- because I'm not even sure that I knew that you could actually have the neophallus without the option for urination and keep your uh, urethra that you were born with. Like, so that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So we can, we can go through a typical scenario of someone who wants a phalloplasty with urethral reconstruction. Mm-hmm. We, we can talk about those stages. That yeah. is the most complicated one. Mm-hmm. Everything is, is it's still complicated. Don't get me wrong, but right. <laughs> It's less steps than that, mm-hmm. and so uh, we can certainly go over that. Mm-hmm. Maybe Nick go over just what a typical full-on reconstruction stages involve. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think I think uh, I also hit on something that which is important and that I appreciate more it, and more is that you know patients coming for fallow, you know, sometimes they come from. Victoria, Canada, and liberal parts of the West Coast, and this idea of being clocked, it doesn't even come up. I mean, that's not even, that's because they're within a community that's right. safe, supportive, accepting, and that's not an issue. I've seen patients from all over, you know, Midwestern, Eastern, East Coast, you know, United States, and that's a huge factor. So it's a little unsatisfying sometimes when patients want to just know a basic answer, like, mm-hmm. how many stages, how do you do this? There's just so many aspects asterisks and caveats Mm -hmm. that it's hard to give a straight answer until you can really kind of go through a person's kind of wish list preferences and sort of get a sense for where they're the most risk adverse and then you can kind of give them a little bit more concrete information Mm -hmm. which and it's it continues to surprise me how patients can have a perfect like they can really understand 95 percent of the whole surgery like when they Mm -hmm. walk in the door but then it's that little about how their personal anatomy or whatever mm-hmm. makes it that makes it hard to like it's you know, like you'll be done in three steps in twelve months and people would or something concrete. But let's just take an example of somebody who's coming in and their stated goals are to have a urethra, which means the tube through which you pee, um, to be able to stand to pee, to be able to have uh, tactile sensation, meaning detecting whether something's being felt on the penis. Mm-hmm. And and even erogenous sensation, and then let's say they also want to go all the way up and finish with a erectile device and even testicular implants. Okay. So that's what? kind of that's kind of like let's say like up the full package. Yeah. And again, not saying that's the that's gold standard. That's just yeah. the most that somebody somebody might pursue. So in general, starting yes. from starting from scratch when they come in, we assess their donor sites, and there's two main donor sites uh, in 2021 for giving somebody a tactile phallus that had sensation. It's either coming from the leg, um, which most patients aren't a candidate for because the tissue is just too thick when you roll it, or the forearm, and that's what's called the radial forearm pre-flap. And that's considered for most groups, I would say, around the country, kind of the gold standard in terms of being able to get the right shape, reliable mm-hmm. uh, blood supply, 
sort of the most predictable outcomes with surgery in terms of when you transfer tissue and its vulnerability, the most predictable kind of course of healing uh, and least anatomic variation among other things. So a radial form would be, if you ask the surgeon, like what would be the best one to do, would be that. And I think for most patients, um, knowing what, what you can sort of most reliably give them. So at their first stage, after undergoing electrolysis um, for approximately a four centimeters longitudinally along the forearm mm-hmm. to get rid of hair in the area that will link the urethra. Um, the, the, the flap is a large rectangle tissue that's rolled pipes. The first tube is the urethra where you pee through, and, the out, and then the second tube is the outside skin. Mm-hmm. The outside skin can have a hair on no problem. You could treat it later if you didn't want, want it, or you could just leave it alone. But the inside skin, if patients have dense hair, and of course with testosterone, a lot of patients have, have dense hair, we require electrolysis. I saw a note in your email ahead of time about pain control for this. Mm-hmm. And actually, Dr. Meltzer and I were just talking about offering just wide um, local field injections. So injecting a bunch of numbing up and down the arm, um, mm-hmm. as we do as we do for numbing scrotum before electrolysis for vaginoplasty. And so we're going to start offering that too. I don't know, Zara, have you, have you done that? Dr. Meltzer said he hadn't done it, but he said he'd, he'd start offering it if people wanted it. Yeah, I had not done it for preparation for either urethral, uh, microsurgical reconstruction, or full phalloplasty reconstruction, but it really wouldn't be any different than offering it, like you said, for scrotal electrolysis for other other mm-hmm. women. Yeah, it's easy to right. do. But we we are able to use longer lasting local anesthetic. Mm-hmm. So as long as their local anesthetic injection and their electrolysis appointment relatively close by they ought to be able to go through a full session of electrolysis through the entire required area with just that dosage of of local anesthetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And that could be, that's, you know, I think one of the things hopefully patients can come away with from this is sort of understanding where some of the hard stops are. So electrolysis is a hard stop, meaning if somebody has a dense forearm hair, one of the things that's going to prevent surgery from happening at your scheduled date be if electrolysis doesn't get complete. I yeah. think sometimes people leave the office with a dizzying amount of information and they have to get letters from mental health, you know, and yeah. Or through. So um, I think it's, I try to give people the impression like, hey, job number one is get on the books with an electrolysis so you can get electrolysis started. I think that is a road, not a roadblock, but that's a challenge because I don't know about other areas, but here in Atlanta, there are just a few really good ones, but a lot of them have a one-year wait list. Exactly. And then, you know, we're I'm trying to collaborate with some to offer that local anesthetic so that they can then go over to the electrologist and have a much longer session and get much more accomplished. So that's part of it, you know, because their electrologists are like, I don't know what to do. These people show up and they're like, I have surgery in, you know, six months or whatever, but I can't even see them for several months. And then when we do have our sessions, you know, they can't tolerate it beyond an hour or something, you know? So that's something that we're trying to work on here locally to open up so that we can make that process a lot more efficient for the patients. Yeah, I think I think we could do a whole separate podcast, honestly, on that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I think that and I gave a talk on it for the, the WPAP meeting, but I think it's, it's such a no-brainer once people realize you can really 
decrease the frequency of these electrologist sessions for patients and make it more comfortable oh, yeah. um, and cheaper. It's it's but it, it it takes the resources. You know, there's probably only a few people that do it right now. And right. It's, it's not any specialist training. But getting back to the staging, maybe hanging. So if somebody is able to get the electrolyte and has everything in line for surgery, we stage this with the creation of the penis, the phallus with the, the urethra inside. So again, it's a tube within a tube. And then we do microsurgery, meaning transfer the tissue and hook it up to a, a blood supply just using a microscope. And then it sits in the anatomic position just uh, in, in front of the pubic bone. And that's really most of what the first stage is. And the first stage of tra- the process of transferring tissue is rife with for potential complications. Um, I think both Zara and I have a lot of training in microsurgery and these surgeries. So of course, you know, we feel comfortable offering it, but it's not without risk. So ideally I like to see the tissue transferred and mm-hmm. see that the patient has healed entirely from that. And at this point we have not touched their any part of their urinary if not created any urethra and it's their urethral sort of plumbing as it were is all intact. If God forbid everything fell apart and there was issues with that so it didn't work all of their natural anatomy would still be in place, mm-hmm. which I think is just important. So you're not leaving them with fish and strictures and right. rerouted urinary stream. There's a sub stage in there where we just put a skin graft on the arm mm-hmm. and then uh, let them heal from that. And then three to five months later, we uh, do what's called urethral lengthening. Uh-huh. So it's connecting their native urethra about eight to 10 centimeters up to the urethra of the phallus Connecting those, creating a scrotum, creating a gland, which is the uh, sort of the, the corona shape of uh, the tip of the penis, um, mm-hmm. and then uh, giving him a urinary diversion via super pubic tube. So at this point, now all the plumbing is hooked up. You allow it to heal. The outside of the penis is shaped, um, and it really takes on at this point a pretty satisfying look as, as you create the gland. It really kind of gives you the sense that like now it's here. It goes from kind of a plain cylinder to like a more mm-hmm. familiar shape. And then they're allowed to heal at that point. It becomes a decision of whether they want um, testicular implants, uh, ultimately, which for us, we use uh, solid silicone in the testicles, sometimes during tissue expansion before that. And, and then once they get sensation in their penis, and you want to have sensation because you want to protect the sensation, meaning if you're going to put in an erectile device, something that's going to be stretching and pulling and tugging on the skin, you want to have sensation that can tell you, ouch, or that hurts or something's wrong before right. you do that. So that would be kind of the last stage a year later. And does that have anything to do that sensation with sexual pleasure as well? It can. I mean, I think, I think people are, you know, of course you're asking somebody who hasn't had it themselves. So I'm always right. in an in amalgam of, of the different kind of reports I've heard or read. Um, I think, I think patients report. So basically, it seems like patients report some something between familiar sensation, pleasurable sensation, and then if through the combination of the sensation of the penis and the location of the clitoris, which is preserved but buried and kind of beneath the penis, so it can still provide some stimulation. Mm-hmm. Happily to say, that, I mean very large amount of patients are able to, to orgasm with this through some combination. Now, exactly how that works, you know, about what's contributing what, what sensation, I, you know, it's hard to say. Okay, cool. 
One thing to mention is that the sensation of the nerves that we connect takes a long time Mm -hmm. to regenerate. We're talking about a year. The earliest any one of our patients reported being orgasmic through their new uh, penis was nine months. Most patients are past a year. And unfortunately, it's not everybody either. So it's something that we can't guarantee. Right. That they can be orgasmic, but like Nick said, it's it's it really is multifactorial. A lot of things come into play to orgasm, and it's not different in our trans women after vaginoplasty. Mm-hmm. It's not a guarantee, but it is a potential benefit of of surgery. Yeah. Would you say the majority will end up with that outcome, or I'd say half for sure. Okay, honestly. I mean, to be completely honest. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, it's, I think it's really important that people have a realistic expectation. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. You know, and it's the things that kind of portend better outcomes in general with when you're reconstructing nerves, younger patients, you know, across the board, if you look at just who recovers nerve function after nerve repairs, and which is essentially what we're doing in nerve repair, mm-hmm. younger patients do better um and if you have to graph if you don't have to use extra nerve to make the connection um it's basically a kind of a race between how fast the nerve regrows and how how much the tissue that it's regrowing into is willing to wait for it that we use two um, again depending on a few caveats we use two nerves that can go two nerve that can go to the phallus. One is a nerve borrowed from the clitoris. The clitoris has two paired nerves um, that are offer sensation to the clitoris. And one of those nerves is transferred up to the phallus. Mm-hmm. And, and if it's a uh, nerve um, from the inner thigh, the kind of upper inner thigh is can be transferred there. So you can get dual innervation plus the sort of sensation of having the clitoris below the phallus. So I would say that part is still definitely being studied um, and is certainly of interest to a lot of patients. But I think at the end of the day, most patients, at least the ones I've worked with, prioritize having their urinary function sort of as the highest Yeah. before and after. Can I say one thing that just come up recently in our clinic? I'll try to keep it really brief. Oh, yeah. But I think a hot topic or at least a controversial topic is weight cutoffs for certain uh, not just wait times, but like, yeah. so let's say a patient finally somehow gets everything together. They got the insurance, they've been jumping through hoops for months, and they mm-hmm. finally get an appointment with the surgeon and they call the office and they say, because of your weight and height, you, you can't do the consult. Like, we don't do anybody over X or over Y. Yeah. And then that's it, you know, and it's just like, uh, and it's it's terrible. You hear about that. And yeah. I, think, I think that there's a consensus that weight, matters but it's people don't necessarily know how to quantify it how to describe exactly why it matters how weight is distributed and everybody is different but mm-hmm. i think it's it's important to know that it's important to know that weight matters only in as much as it will make your surgery potentially less successful or less healthy or more you know maybe so delayed healing we'll times try to, yeah, so I encourage patients that get kind of turned down based on weights to at least reach out and kind of talk about it. And I think one of the things I've kind of identified is 
I'm going to start referring some of our patients to our hospitals. They have like a, like a supervised nutritionist program that takes in patients that are, they can follow them sort of month by month, you know, and rather than say lose 50 pounds and come back, which I think most people that's sort of how you just kind of grow up hearing it. Yeah. Give, right. them, give them a more tangible resource. Um, and I don't know what ultimately is going to be the most effective resource, but I think it's important to know that weight is itself. There's no, we don't, I wouldn't say we have a certain cutoff, but if I see somebody, any of us that have weight above and beyond what I think makes it safe or feasible to do the surgery that we'll try to explain why and kind yeah. of go through strategies or talk about alternatives. Yeah. But, Cause I can't imagine being told, Oh, lose 50 pounds and come back is overly motivating for no. most people. And often probably extremely difficult to do. Cause as if people haven't been struggling with their weight their whole lives anyways. Yeah. There are other options to kind of, it has to do with weight distribution. So we don't look at a singular number like mm-hmm. BMI, BMI, it's just a number. Yes, it matters, but it also matters where the fat distribution is. Yeah. So sometimes a patient can benefit from, say, a mons resection or even a paniculectomy, and maybe that's all they need to get them to be surgery ready, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what that does is it just facilitates that area mm-hmm. for the surgery to be done. Yeah. You can't attach a phallus to the mons when it's, you know, four inches thick. Right. Makes it more challenging. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's much more challenging and maybe even a bit impossible to mm-hmm. expect that to do well after surgery, especially with a penis that would otherwise be laying on top of your new penis. Right. And so we have offered that to patients and gotten them through surgery successfully by offering these options but of course that doesn't apply for everybody but right you know the point is that we do do our best to try to obviously not discourage the patients like Nick said give Mm -hmm. them alternatives give them you know as much help as they can to try to lose the weight Mm -hmm. Um, but also see if there are other things that can be done to perhaps facilitate that process for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, I've had several patients reach out to me before to, you know, to establish care for the continuation of hormones and also just discuss weight loss options because they had been turned down by uh, multiple gender surgeons because of their BMI. But again, when you meet the person in person, depending on the surgery that they're seeking, it's like, well, I don't understand how this could even be an issue. You know, that's not even where you carry your weight. You know, and as long as their chronic medical issues, if they even exist, are under control, then, you know, I've been able to reach out and find other surgeons like uh, what yourselves are saying, uh, who don't just look at that BMI number and will actually meet the patient and consult and look at the actual anatomy and see what they need to do to either customize or change the approach in which they do the procedure. But so I think that's really good, you know, because one of the other things that I try to preach to patients is you can be healthy at every size. I think a lot of people in general have had disordered eating, have been denied good, safe health care based on their size. And so I think that's really unfortunate when people like what Nick said, get turned away just because they see a number and they're like, eh, lose 50 pounds and come back. Well, I don't know how you expect them to do that when they've probably been losing, trying to lose weight their entire lives and have been unsuccessful. So I think that's awesome that you guys are navigating that and offering them good, solid resources to help them achieve their goals. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it remains to be seen what's the most effective way to help people get there. I think the other thing would be an honest conversation about, like, let's look at plan B and C and say, yeah. let's say we don't get there. Mm-hmm. And here's 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 what, what's still on the table. You mm-hmm. know? And I think being able to have leave, but the last thing I want somebody to leave feeling like hopeless, you know, I want them to sort of feel like there's a plan and there's a backup plan, you know, and if there's one thing that's great about plastic surgery is that we can always come up with some other new option or tweak. I mean, it's a field that's kind of on adaptability mm-hmm. and sort of creative thinking when it comes to how to get these reconstructions done. So if, if it just doesn't come together for somebody making sure they still feel like we can give them some options to, mm-hmm. uh, to take on. Yeah, for sure. One of the other things I wanted to ask since we were talking about kind of potential complications and long-term considerations was someone specifically asked, we already kind of touched on the importance of hair removal prior to the surgery, but, you know, if someone did undergo electrolysis, but for some reason it wasn't completed uh, adequately or they did experience internal hair growth, what are the implications of that, like internal hair growth in like side of the urethra? So what happens is that... Hair kind of serves as a filter through the new urethra. Uh-huh. And the urethra is obviously buried within a, a penis. Mm-hmm. And so access to those hair follicles is extremely difficult. Right. And because urine is obviously full of waste, right? That's why we all right. urinate. It has minerals. It has electrolytes in there, there's all kinds of stuff that eventually as it basically filters through that this hair sieve, mm-hmm. it forms calcifications. You can think mm-hmm. of it as hard water going through faucets mm-hmm. and that calcium buildup forms around the mouth of that of the spout. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happens to urethras that have a lot of hair in it. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes an obstructive complication. You can't pee because your pipe is clogged up, basically. Right. Okay. And there are ways to treat it, but they are not necessarily the most effective or the most easy. I know that you can put up, put in like a laser light up in there Mm -hmm. and try to zap it. You can chemically try to treat it, Mm -hmm. but you have to balance that with potential damage and or scarring to your new urethra, mm-hmm. which then can lead to scarring issues. And strictures, and, I imagine. Stri- right, exactly. Strictures and, and things like that. So um, Is that's it- really the implication of not having yeah. thoroughly right. you know, done the hair electrolysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like we mentioned earlier, it's, it's a bit of a hard stop on proceeding with Right. Some of these these uh reconstructions is the hair. So I'm guessing then that it's not, you know, if someone does believe that they've had complete electrolysis of the area, that's not a common occurrence for you to see that type of thing. You mean just if somebody hasn't had electrolysis and to go on to develop hair in the urethra anyway? Yeah. So if they, you know, presumably no, they've had it, yeah. Yeah, no, I what what we're talking about is more 
you know, thick, dense hair that's right there when you're starting the right. surgery. Okay. So it's not likely no for, you know, a patient to believe that they've undergone complete electrolysis and have that occur later. Electrology, it's a little bit of a, it's kind of a, a delayed effect that you see over time. So the electrologist can't say on any given day, you're ready or you're done or whatever. They have to, what they're assessing is the growth of these hair follicles in three month cycles. So if anybody is sort of out there wondering, like, why is it taking forever? Just go in and zap it mm-hmm. and get it over with. You know, I'll stay as long as I have to. The hair, you can zap all the hair you want. But then what the electrologist wants to see is how that, what hair uh, turns much and what pattern, what density and so on and so forth after it goes through this two or three month uh, growth. Mm-hmm. It has to, in order to really say like, yeah, I think we got it all. It usually takes a couple of, seeing it over a couple of different growth cycles. Right. To ensure. I could stay with, yeah. You know, it's, it's not a step that you want to, that you want to skip over. You wouldn't want to just get electrologists. Right. It's kind of why it is one of those things you want to get started early. Yeah. Um, and then, and then of course, anybody out there sort of trying to say, okay, I'll start, I'll start. Just tell me what to do. I think it's important for, if your electrologist is not familiar with the pattern of hair removal to get in contact with the surgeon's office early, rather than have somebody try to guess and say, well, I think somebody from so-and-so from Belgium used to do it this way. So I'll just take the hair here. Yeah. It should be the, it should be incumbent upon the surgeon uh, providing information to the parent or the patient and the electrologist about where hair removal should, should be just so I've seen instances where people kind of got the wrong area or incomplete. Yeah. And they just kind of check, checked in and try to, I guess, so yeah. Yeah. And I think that I think that's important to note, too, because I have spoken to um, a local electrologist here who mentioned like sometimes it's hard because patients, if they haven't gotten that information from their surgeon, you know, he's kind of like, OK, so where what area am I working with? Then I need to know exactly the borders of where they're going to take the graft. So I think a good like you said, a good educated electrologist, not someone who's just doing it for other cosmetic reasons. One that's actually doing it in preparation for people undergoing affirming surgeries is really important. So one thing that I have done for patients is I have literally measured out and marked their arms. Oh, that's in a awesome. Consultation, mm-hmm. And they can take a picture of it and they basically take that to their local electrologist and, and be like, okay, this is the exact area mm-hmm. that needs to be done. And I think that's about as customized as you, as you can get. Yeah, no, I, I think that's know. perfect. Now, on the other hand, there are patients who are relatively hairless, especially over certain parts of the forearm. Uh-huh. So usually the inner part of the forearm tends to be less hairy. Mm-hmm. It's not everybody. Some people are super hairy all the way around. Mm-hmm. And so I have had patients come in for palopathy that actually do not need electrolysis because the area of where the urethra portion of the reconstruction would come from has no hair whatsoever naturally. Mm-hmm. So it's really the urethral portion of that forearm that mm-hmm. needs the electrolysis. Mm-hmm. A common question is, do I need the entire arm done? And the answer is not necessarily. You definitely have to get the urethral portion mm-hmm. done, but the rest of it you can do afterwards. Mm-hmm. For electrolysis, what that means is that the hair is going to end up on your penis on the outside. Mm-hmm. 
And because it takes so long for the sensation to come back. Oh, yeah, you, you wouldn't even feel it. You can get all of the electrolysis, exactly. You can get all of this external penis shaft head mm -hmm. electrolysis done with no pain whatsoever. Oh, yeah, I didn't even and think about that. Without harm to the penis, without harm to the new penis itself. Of course, you have to wait for everything to heal mm -hmm. before you start stabbing needles into it. Right. <laughs> yeah, so those are some of the variations that we do see. So not everybody needs that done. But the common question, like I said, is, do I need to do the whole thing? And the answer is no. Okay. Well, that's perfect. One other question, too, I wanted to make sure I asked about was, you know, what to expect kind of if you and what the rates are of people who might have like chronic pain or discomfort with urination. Is that something that you guys see? And if yes, is it common, not common? And what ways can you manage it? So in terms of chronic pain or any kind of pain in terms of urination, I don't hear that very much. Okay. Uh, That's what good. I do hear more commonly mm -hmm. about urination is dribbling. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those things that once you're fully reconstructed, whether that's primary urethral lengthening and metodoplasty only, or mm -hmm. primary urethral lengthening and full phalloplasty with urethral reconstruction, mm -hmm. it's the dribbling. And what happens is that the new urethra the extension of the urethra and the phallus urethra doesn't really have any contractile properties like a natural urethra would have. Mm -hmm. So squeezing out that last bit of the urine can be an issue. And so what happens is the urine collects in the, in the new urethral segment. And so guys learn to milk their penises and mm. their urethra to get all of it out because it's, I'm sure it's mortifying uh, and very embarrassing to finish peeing, you put it back in your pants and all of a sudden you have like a wet spot on your khakis, you know? Right, right. That would not be ideal. So if anything, that's what I do hear about. And that's when we try to teach the patients like, okay, you might want to have to stand there a little bit longer you know, milk it all the way from the bottom out to the tip kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I I can't think of a location where someone's like, it hurts to pee, mm -hmm. like all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I recently had a patient who under, underwent surgery and had a question about that because they do have like a, a pain every time they initiate urination. They're pretty closely post-op and we're trying to manage it, but they wondered if that was something that was common. So, um, well, I don't know that patient's particular situation, but if mm -hmm. they have a stricture, mm -hmm. maybe it's just it's harder to push that initial mm -hmm. urine volume out through the, you know, through the narrowed mm -hmm. part. And so it backs up and maybe there's some pressure build up from it. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, I couldn't say without really knowing the patient. Right, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like in general, you know, with the way that you stage out the surgeries and prepare people for it, you don't typically see a lot of post-op complications and people tend to have long-term satisfaction with their surgery. Would you say that's accurate? I want, you know, so for, for centers that do a lot of uh-huh, especially microsurgical phalloplasties, 
you know, so, some people will literally say, like a surgical phalloplasty has a hundred percent complication rate. Uh-huh. Um, and that's kind of an exaggeration, but when you think about wound issues, any little thing obviously would be considered a complication. So mm-hmm. I think the complication rate, I wouldn't say that it's low, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily catastrophic. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, like total loss of the penis. Uh, it's extremely, extremely rare at any major experience center. Mm-hmm. But things like stricture, fistula, I mean, I'd say those are relatively common, but fixable. Yeah. But no, I wouldn't really want to give someone an impression that it's relatively complication-free. I don't know. What do you think, Meg? Uh, I wouldn't want someone to come out with that right. with that impression. Certainly complications do happen. And it's one of those procedures where the complication rate, I think, tends to run higher. But most of these things are fixable. Yeah, I think I think we it's important for patients to know it's kind of the you know, of course the risks at each stage. And I think for the groups that now include ours that sort of stage it uh, in this way, try to break break up an overall very risky endeavor in terms of getting it to all work perfectly. Mm-hmm. You try to break it up into a subset procedures that with each one of them, you could sort of wrap your hands around and get a hold of the complication, whatever it might be, big or small, and get it dealt with so that you can get to the next stage and right. gear up for that. The worst thing would be that if you had some complication that then sort of spilled over into the next component of the reconstruction. So say the part of the penis dies, but in the process of doing that, you lose the connection to the urethra. So the mm-hmm. urinary stream has to be rerouted or they have to be diverted or it can kind of domino quickly. But I think by, if you take a more measured approach, you could say, let's, let's just take on and accept all the risk and potential for complications with each stage and mm-hmm. make sure it's all done before we go to the next. And I think during residency, which is you, I think, I think it's, it's really helpful because the stages, the clock's not ticking. Once you've done one stage, you can wait 10 years to go to the next, right. you know, whatever. So like, let's get you through this, this stage and I'll tell you what, what may or may not, wrong and what the challenges would be let's get you through it and then when you're ready for the next one let us know and some patients like turn around and sign up for the next stage right away other ones wanted to say like oh, i need a year or two or i need to get you know this was so mm-hmm. it, it i think as opposed to just sort of stacking up all the potential for, for things to go wrong i think everybody kind of knows that phalloplasty has kind of a high complication profile in terms right. of getting your urinary defect to work and all that which is great patients don't come in expecting you know like to buy a brand new car off the lot like they know it's a right it's a serious undertaking so our job is then to make it as safe as possible and as manageable as possible when it doesn't you know if and when something there's some issue mm-hmm. um and i think patients respond to that well because you know that yeah yeah i think, I think anytime you set up the expectations clearly 
patients do better with that, you know, so that there's no surprises per se, you know, if they know it's, this is possible, this is possible. You know, you might not experience any of this, but you might experience all of this, you know, we're going to do our best to reduce that possibility. I think then when you set the expectation and the tone, they uh, roll with the punches a lot better. I think that another thing that's important for listeners to kind of take away, especially since this is a national audience, mm-hmm. is you know that for whether it's stuff you end up coming to us or any place really, but just looking, figuring out very early what the travel and away from home time is going to be, mm-hmm. and just realizing that sort of as you're making plans, you know, for I think in Arizona we usually have it somewhere stay there between four and six weeks. Mm-hmm. to get kind of the first little group of procedures done, make sure that they're covering and be able to send them home feeling pretty confident that they could go back to state X where they're a surgeon and we could manage most of the stuff remotely if something came up. Okay. In Portland, I think that there's be, my sense is already just from what we've been seeing in clinic, there'll be more patients living closer. So I think or two or three, which means I think that they have the potential to go home a little earlier because they, they can come back yeah. easier as a, you know, which is just not the case if somebody lives in New England and has to fly back and forth to Scottsdale to, to manage something. Right, That's right. Another. So they, then, then they stay just a little longer in Arizona until everything is um, hunky-dory. Yeah, yeah. I could see that because Portland, Oregon in general is a lot more inclusive than a lot of the places that these patients travel from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's excellent. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe, then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information thank you so much the only other thing that i wanted to ask was is you know as far as when a patient is wanting to establish with the Meltzer clinic is it really just up to them uh, which location they want to be seen at or like what's the process if they were to reach out to try and get a surgical consult it's up to the patients which location and what I've noticed is that patients will pick not necessarily in terms of location, but more as in timing. Yeah. You know, where, which location can I get in mm-hmm. faster or for whatever mm-hmm. timing, your know, time frame that they, that they have in mind. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Otherwise, the location, I don't think really matters to some folks Uh obviously those who live in the northwest would probably really just prefer to stay in the northwest just because travel is less probably less dense and others just want to get away from the weather and be like it's beautiful and you know in scottsdale Mm -hmm. um not in the summer but (laughs) i was just gonna say everyone's probably really hot right now (laughs) They're like this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so people are willing to travel. Most of our patients do come from out of state, from all over the country. And, you know, it's not hard to pick, you know, Oregon over 
Arizona yeah. because from really far away. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they would just have to call and figure out what the timing is, which surgeon they they want to go with. You know, uh-huh. there's three of us. We all do the same thing uh-huh. and go from there, you know. Excellent. Very good. So before I let you all go, is there anything else that you want to make sure we chat about today or like anything you want the listeners to know? But I was going to say a little bit about the about the complications and the phalloplasty. Yeah. Just so it, it doesn't sound so grim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you're going to take on this. You're going to like almost die before you come out the other end. <laughs> it's not like, you know, patients do get through relatively unscathed. Yeah, And we do have the success stories where it's like, wow, like you really made it through all these steps yeah. pretty darn well. And so patients do get through. So that's the only thing. Yes, it sounds like yeah, there are a lot of complications, things like that, but it's it's not 100% yeah. as I sort of exaggerated. People do get through and they do well. And so um, yeah, just so that, you know, it's not like, such a great picture because it, it, it's not always like that. <laughs> yeah, right. And it sounds like some of the complications that patients can experience might be more of like little bumps in the road or hiccups rather than, like you said, right. anything major or that would really put a stop on their progress. Right. And even if something major does happen, you know, Nate kind of alluded to this, we're plastic surgeons, we're quite creative. There are options and there are ways to get around it. So yeah. And able to to face some major complications and still get them out the other end just as well, you know, just a bumpier road and a longer time frame. Excellent. Awesome. Nick, is there anything you wanted to add to? I think it's good folks to know that we've been doing these telehealth appointments and been staying busy. I mean, I think it was partly due to rules that changed during COVID with which states have interchangeability with our medical licenses and things like that. But like, I think getting telehealth a consult is a new option. But, you know, even my QCP office offers it. I'm sort of like, mm-hmm. first I was like, well, no, I want them to go in there and like listen to my heart and lungs. Or something. Yeah. But like, and you realize like most of what you're getting is a conversation and somebody to kind of mm-hmm. help you go through complex information and weigh the risks benefits and of course a physical exam is especially for surgery mm-hmm. so it doesn't really obviate the need for that but at least gets the conversation going i think the number of misconceptions or partial misconceptions or even things where people are like oh i read on reddit that your group only does this little maneuver it's like a little step, surgical step that i wouldn't expect anyone in the world to know it's like got a reddit subthread on there like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you're like what it's like well, where is that from like yeah it, you know and it's not like malicious it's just it's yeah you have to spend time sort of like unwinding that and like, hold on first of all everybody does that or whatever it is. And yeah. Yeah. So getting, getting information and especially with phallopathy, it's just, it's, I've not seen a diagrammatic or pictorial way to represent the, the step other than just some like comic meme where somebody has got a million bullets pointed on the wall and all the strings connected, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways to get, to get to the, to get to the goal. 
mm-hmm. and you can take a lot of drugs and there's a lot of caveats and it's it's a little frustrating sometimes to not be able to give patients like a clear information like once two steps you know three deductibles whatever the whole thing is like it's it's there's just a lot there's a lot to it so getting people to get in contact early i think is important uh, and i think the telehealth the, the telehealth is, is a great way to do that and then you know, just in general our patients show up with more awareness of, of these complications so that they're we're not you know when you talk about complications ours it sounds sort of like the doom and gloom but it's right it's more that it's more that they're setbacks that for the most part right most of these complications don't stop the process and they're done it's more like setback have to delay do an extra step divert the urine you know there's yeah they're, they're all complications is kind of a catch-all term in surgery to kind of just say like darn it i wish it had gone better yeah know, or something like that but like it doesn't necessarily mean it's like it we're done Sounds yeah. like yeah, like an old pamphlet. It's like so you had a complication, but not right. <laughs> yeah. But I think you know one of the nice things about being a gender surgeon as sort of your primary gig is that you know when you offer these surgeries, when you do it, you understand the context of how these, how what patients do to prepare for them, to prepare for surgery, what it means when it doesn't go right, and what it means to have sort of a longitudinal relationship with them. Yeah. You know, I think it's. I think we've been humbled by how just, you know, even in year five or six of now doing this between residency and training, it's like, I'm still humbled by how little I really know or how much more there is to know about how to, how to really take care of patients beyond just the surgical piece, you know? Right. I find myself now like, let's go back to the books. Let's get some more courses on, you know, like I said, adolescent hormones or whatever other things, you know, that's a big school. So you want someone that's competent. Mm-hmm. They'll see through it. And yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there's always more to learn. And sometimes people even ask me, I, I mean, I just do medical management, but ask me questions about things like long term health risks and all those types of things. And it's, you know, why do I do one medication over another? And I'm like, well, there is no study on it. I've just got hundreds of patients and I just know what works. And so sometimes it's just like gaining experience and knowing what people need and trying to adapt it and not doing what I call quote cookie cutter medicine. So yeah, I think that's great that you all have a similar approach. It sounds like when a patient arrives at the clinics, that they get a very individualized assessment. And like you said, that we're, you're addressing their, their personal goals and needs as well. Well, I just want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat today. Really excited about this. I know that my listeners are going to be excited about this information. And if they have any kind of follow-up questions or they want to reach out to your clinic, which is the best way for them to do that? Through our website, I would think. It's got our phone number. Yeah, it's got all our contacts. Someone can just Google the Meltzer Clinic and the, the information for the office is there, email, you know, locations, stuff about us, the, the surgeons, mm-hmm. and they can make a, a decision on what they want to do, who they want to go with. Like I said, we're all, we all do the same thing. You know, we were all trained ultimately mm-hmm. by Dr. Meltzer, who was back in the day the do-it-all. Yeah. <laughs> Because um, he was one of the few. One of the trailblazers. I yeah, I think that's, you know, I know Nick mentioned this before, is that, you know, one thing that is very special about our practice is that we are truly 
a very comprehensive gender surgery center where we do it. I mean, we literally do it all. Yeah. You guys even um, offer hormone therapy too, right? Yes. We yeah. offer hormone therapy and yeah, you know, and I think our experience just because, you know, I, I can't take credit for it. Dr. Meltzer, again, is one of the giants in gender surgery and due to his reputation and his experience, I was able to build a solid practice based on that. And not just that, but just the amount of exposure, you know, the amount of patients. I've only been in this for six years, but compared to other folks six years mm-hmm. out, it, I just have so many more patients. Right. Um, so your experience you know, is far be- more comprehensive. Right, because Dr. Meltzer really and Nick's gonna have the same, the same thing now based off of Dr. Meltzer, based off of me, mm-hmm. and then he's gonna build a giant practice, and you know hopefully we take on more people as, as we get older, mm-hmm. and you know put out more, more, you know yeah. conscientious, good, caring gender surgeons out there. Awesome. And Nick, does your I location think- offer hormones as well? Not explicitly through the clinic, but I think the you know, way a lot of the hormones are managed, uh-huh. uh, the hormone, the person who manages hormones, Arizona clinic, I don't think she could do cross state lines. Right. right. That okay. might be possible. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that. so. She, she would just... need a license. She would need a license in Oregon. Mm-hmm. She's, an, she's okay. a nurse practitioner mm-hmm. and she's involved in, you know, WPATH. You know, she she does keep up with the HRT literature and treatments. Mm-hmm. In that case, I would the our the, the hospital at Legacy Good Sam has gender and sexual health center, uh, which is run by Dr. Megan Bird, who's fabulous, and she's a gynecologist with very special interest in uh, gender surgery, gender care, and all things related to affirming care up to the legislative level and administrative level. Awesome. Uh, if, anybody's asked, if anybody's asked about hormones, she manages hormones, and she'll also be working with us as part of um, our phalloplasty and pituitary program as well. Oh, very cool. Performing the vaginectomy. The vaginectomy. We didn't, we, this probably didn't come up uh, organically here, but I'll sort of stick it in. Maybe you can edit it. And however, but yeah. it is important to note it, to note another one of these kind of hard stops, that we do not, offer uh, urethral lengthening without having a vaginectomy and hysterectomy performed first due to the unacceptably high risk of urinary complications that come with that, among other Yeah, and I so actually read about those complications too. So that is definitely something that we can probably intersect into your staging conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. It's just one of those things that people ask every now and then. I had somebody the other day that they wanted to help us today. Absolutely wanted to keep the vagina because maybe they wanted to have kids at some point and mm-hmm. it's like great you know you could always do a phalloplasty you could have the phallus not touch anything else for now and yeah. then after your kids go back I mean, of course yeah yeah again that's know, cool and i guess that maybe even some people who identify option. as non-binary would would be interested in that as well yeah and there's there's even now more and more kind of published reports out there about what these kind of the you know how what non-binary patients are asking for in contrast to patients that are historically requested 
things for gender surgery. So we're not seeing some new requests or preferences or sort of circumstances that then we say, okay, like, let's, mm -hmm. you know, as long as it's safe and everybody's on board. You know, awesome. Very cool. Well, thanks again so much. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth.